good morning and welcome to another episode of Business and Legal Week in Review. Today is May 26th, 2015. I'm here with my co-host, Bob Hughes. How are you doing this morning, Bob? Very well, thank you, and I'm definitely guilty of being here. <laughs> so hopefully everybody out there had a nice Memorial Day. Bob and I were just talking about what we did, and um, it always stinks coming back to work. No matter what day of the week it is, it doesn't need to be a Monday to stink when you come back to work, but it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we are going to dump, the, I think, the longer... Uh, intro and uh, like to hear from everybody out there to see if if you like the dumped longer intro we'll go with the short intro for for the next few weeks and uh, and see if that uh, appeals to everybody I kind of like it a little bit it's to the point it is to the point um, speaking of of to the point um, did you see the stories over the weekend everybody pointing a finger at uh, at Josh Duggar of 19 Kids and Counting. Did you see that whole uh, story? I picked it up this morning when I entered reality again. <laughs> That's right. You were you were you had invited everyone over last week to your house because you weren't going did, to be there. Anyone Nobody showed up. up? Nobody showed up. <laughs> no. That's, I I forgot to put a map out, so a lot of people roaming around Michigan looking for me. That's I wouldn't do it again. I mean, you made an offer. Nobody wanted to come. Everybody <laughs> missed the opportunity. So uh, yeah, I mean this this Josh Duggar thing. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Nineteen Kids and Counting, but it's a show about the Duggar family. It's been on, I think, for almost eleven sure. years. And yeah, it hasn't been on that long. Wow. Yeah, yeah, eleven years, and they gained notoriety because they were a uh, predominantly Christian family who happened to have a ton of kids, nineteen of them, in fact, and they all have names that begin with the letter J. And so they became a very popular sort of reality show icon, especially on TLC. And the show really preached Christian values and beliefs. And there was a lot of, of talk on, on each episode about kids as they got older, not dating and traditional courting and not hugging the way that you and I were would hug. Um, but they do side hugs and all this stuff about uh, Christian values and, and how to live a good life. And, um, you know, it was there were some annoyances to the show. But overall, I think it, it, it kind of had a, like a little house in the prairie positive message. And then last week, Thursday into Friday, there's this announcement that Josh Duggar, who is the eldest son of, of Jim Bob, um, I love his name. Um, I, yeah, I try not to laugh. <laughs> He was uh, accused when he was 14 of molesting a number of um, of kids, including his own sisters. And it was sort oh. of swept, yeah, swept under the rug a little bit. They dealt with it privately, and then eventually they brought this out to um, to the police. And allegedly, from, from what I hear, uh, Jim Bob, the father, had some sort of connection or friendship or uh, acquaintance with this police officer and nothing was actually done and since no charges were filed the statute of limitations has run and therefore Josh does not have any criminal uh, worries but he has had to resign from his job in Washington DC and uh, he I can't remember the name of his his operation that he was working for but it was some right-wing Christian organization and they espoused a lot of anti-gay 
uh, views, which is strange, I think, uh, from, I mean, look, I, I happen to be a Christian, and I, I don't think that it's necessarily appropriate at any time to judge anyone. That's not the way I read the Bible, but um, they were very outspoken against against homosexuality, and now people are calling for an end to the show. The show's already been sort of suspended, but they're calling for an end to the show because here you are teaching these Christian values, and you have this, this secret, and they're calling him at 14 a child molester, and want the show to be thrown off the air. So, um, I, you know what's interesting to me, and I want to get your opinion on it. At 14, 14 years old, right now he's in his 20s, and he's married, and he's he's going back and he's saying, I apologize, I did something that was wrong. But people are, are calling him a child molester. At 14, do you think somebody can have that designation of a child molester? That's... That is probably one of the better questions that ever gets asked because, by law, you cannot have a consenting minor. Um, And I think that you have to fall back on, and unfortunately it's purely opinion, is what the age range is involved. Because if you're you're technically, if you have a 14-year-old and a 14-year-old, that's molestation. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And so, by law. And so now you start to look, well, gosh, we're probably – all guilty at some point, or and I say all using the blanket eighty twenty rule, um, but but now you start to look at fourteen and maybe the children were eight or maybe the children were ten or, or six. Um, now you've got now you've got a, a problem, and, and and that's that's that 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 blanket child molestation label can be incorrect, and and that's but it, but the law is the law, and so I guess it, it's it's a tough question to answer. Um, we're all guilty if, if that's the if, that, if that's the blanket definition. We're all guilty. You know, it's what's interesting is that, you know, if, like you said, if you're 14 and 14, you could be accused of statutory rape, even if both parties mm-hmm. were consenting. Um, but people don't necessarily frown upon that. Well, I mean, they do. I'm not saying it's right, but it, it doesn't have that same negative connotation as child molester. I mean, that's like really bad. Um, mm-hmm. But still in all, you know, at least in New Jersey, if you are convicted of rape, even if you are a minor with another minor of the same age, I mean, you could theoretically still be listed on Megan's list. And so, you know, it's a bad thing. But, the, sure. the, the, you know, I, I have been trying to figure out in my own head because what I, you know, I don't think what he did was right at all. Um, but what I've been trying to figure out is at 14 is it a mistake or is it child molestation if you have a 14-year-old kid who gets drunk and takes his parents' car and drives through the front of a store? Is that a mistake? Is that something you say, oh, he was young? Um, you know, how does that factor into this? Because when I think of child molester, I think of an adult with a child. And even though you've got somebody who's obviously older, because especially if it's one of his sisters, he was older than all of his sisters. At least, yeah, so I just wonder, are people, are the media, are the people that are so anti-Duggar jumping on the child molestation bandwagon simply because it sounds so bad? Um, Sure. You know? It's easy. It is easy. And then the other thing that troubles me is the fact that, you know, here you have this, this group of Christians, and I think they were so 
so right wing uh, on so many issues, and and just it was kind of like their own religious sect. Certainly not what mainstream, in my opinion, mainstream Christianity is about. I mean, you've got the Pope sure. and the Catholic Church saying that he's not going to judge whether or not somebody is 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 committing a sin, you know, by by the fact that they're homosexual. And I think that that's ushering in a new era of acceptance by the Catholic Church, which is something new. But here you've got this kind of, you know, right-wing group where Jim Bob holds church in his house with with him being the, the pastor or whatever he is. And it's just kind of weird. Now you've got people saying, yeah, well, you know, how can you preach all these positive values when you've got this kid who has had all these issues? So, you know, that's it's it's challenging to deal with that issue. Well, I think he could still, you know, and that's the sad thing. You've got one, you know, one bad apple spoiling the entire bunch. And like you had said, because they are so um, right wing per se, or so, so heavy into Christianity, if they, if they weren't, if they just, if they were just people that had 19 babies and had no um, church affiliation or even talked about religion, I don't think that as many people would be getting on them as heavily I think there would still be some backlash, but it's easy to throw the uh, anti-Christian rhetoric out there now. Like you had said, you know, how can you proclaim to be a minister preaching in your own home if you have a child who is a child molester, uh, per se, or allegedly? Um, It's just it's easy for those that are against certain beliefs to really jump and jump hard. And unfortunately, that's the you know when you decide to live your life in the bubble. That's the risk you take. And then sadly, the kids always end up paying. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. There's no doubt that what he did was wrong. Um, right. And whether or not it, it's some sort of disorder that he has or, or something else, I don't know. But from a legal standpoint, there was an interesting article I read on Saturday. I don't know if you ever saw this show. I could not stand this show. Honey Boo Boo. You ever see that oh, show? Oh, yeah. I've never uh, seen it. I won't see it, and I but I know what it is about. I, <laughs> That's why I won't see it. Watch it. <laughs> had to be the worst show I've ever seen. So awful. I don't understand how Americans could sit and watch that. But she oh, issued, we love the train wreck, man. Yeah, she issued a statement on uh, Saturday saying that if they don't take 19 kids and counting off the air, she's going to file a lawsuit because she had her <laughs> show canceled because. Her, I, I, I don't remember if she was having an affair, allegedly, or if it was her boyfriend or husband, but whoever it was, the male figure was yeah. an accused child molester, and they pulled the show, TLC pulled the show because of that, and so now she's saying, if you've done that to me, and it wasn't even in my family per se, if, if you don't do it to the Duggars, I'm going to sue. What do you think about sure. that? Well, and she absolutely makes a point. However, at what point, you know, you, you can make a point about that all day long, but entertainment gets the right, and I say the right because of how they operate, the right to discriminate. They always do. Because you look at, at we can hire whoever we want, and we can discriminate against whoever we want, because it doesn't matter. We're trying to build a brand. We're trying to do this. So that's a great question. Well, look at Hooters. Hooters says, we're not a restaurant. We're entertainment. And the fact that we hire buxom young ladies that we like to look at, 
that's because that's our that's our brand that's our identity that's our entertainment and so we yep. can do whatever we want when it comes to that so that'll be i would it would be interesting to see it come out because i'm absolutely 100% in agreement with her which yeah. i can't believe i just said um <laughs> because she has a valid point you did it to me you need to do it to everybody but yeah. i know i it'll be that'll be i would love to see that go to town you know what would be interesting because I think that the Duggars have the highest ratings on TLC. So when you're dealing with entertainment, like you said, I mean, there's so many other factors that go into play: ratings and popularity and the the building the brand. TLC sure. was built around reality television or a perception thereof. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that'll be it'll be fun to, fun to watch and unfold. That's for sure. You will see what happens there with with, with the Duggars, but it's a, certainly an interesting and disturbing story all at the same time. Yes, and something definitely at the top of the headlines, and so keep an eye on it. Uh, do we have um, uh, sponsorships going today? You know, we'll get to the sponsorships. Uh, well, we might as well do it now. Why not? Yeah, today's you. Shows, Your show. <laughs> we are going to do it right now because yeah. I forgot. Um, today's show <laughs> Important stuff. That's right. By Audible. Uh, Audible is the largest provider of audiobooks on the internet, and everyone who listens to UTL Radio is entitled to one free audio download from Audible. All you have to do is go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash UTL Radio, and you're entitled to a free audiobook. There's no strings attached, so it's free. You might as well go for it. Um, you know, they've got this vast library of hundreds of thousands of books. I find it very helpful because I can't always find the time to sit and read a book, but I certainly can listen to a book while I'm in the shower, while I'm in the car, um, while I'm out doing yard work, which I did this weekend. So take advantage of that. It's uh, audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. All right. Thank you, Bob. There you go. Um, For the record, by the way, Josh Duggar was the executive director, I say was, of FRC, the Family Research Council. Oh, that's back, what, or yeah. lobbying group, yeah. So there you go. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, back to the headlines. <laughs> Police um, still need warrants, come to find out, even if the landlord's involved in the search. Courthousenews.com in Trenton, New Jersey. Down the street from Peter, a New Jersey man on drug and weapons offenses, including possession of armor-piercing bullets, secured a state Supreme Court reversal Tuesday over a warrantless apartment search. The charges stem from the 2009 search of a two-family home in Ashbury Park after the landlord entered his tenant's apartment when no one was home. Evangeline James had known her landlord was coming with a plumber uh, that day because she had called him the night before to report a leak. She didn't answer the phone when the landlord called, however, so he let himself and the plumber in as he had done before. Now, the landlord called police when he found a small bag of marijuana and a small box in an open drawer of the nightstand that he suspected was crack cocaine. Now, when a narcotics officer spoke with James outside the apartment about the drugs that had been found, James signed a consent to search for him. Investigators ultimately found a handgun loaded with armor-piercing hollow-point bullets in a black camera bag, plus sandwich bags, measuring cups, and baking soda, all used to cut and package cocaine. Now, after police arrested James and they were leading her away, Ricky Wright, the boyfriend who stayed at the apartment three or four nights a week, arrived at the apartment. He was arrested as well and eventually pleaded guilty to the entire indictment when the Monmouth County trial court denied his motion to suppress the evidence. Excuse me. Wright got a 15-year sentence, and prosecutors dismissed all the charges against James. 
A New Jersey appellate court later affirmed that the search was legal because the officer who arrived at the apartment first merely verified the landlord's lawful observations. The state Supreme Court unanimously reversed that on May 19th, however, finding that the search violated both the Fourth Amendment and the New Jersey Constitution. They said that a landlord, like any other guest, may tell the police about contraband he or she has observed. Chief Justice Stuart Rabner wrote for the court, and the police in turn can use that information to apply for a search warrant. But that course of events does not create an exception to the warrant requirement. That's the point they're making. Since the drugs and firearm discovered in James's apartment were in the bedroom at the back of the apartment, the Plainview Doctrine cannot help police who were not in a common area to see the items entering. The court refused to apply precedent involving searches of motels or hotel rooms by managers that led to police searches. Residents do not forfeit an expectation of privacy as to the police. Similar difference between a hotel room and an apartment, Rabner wrote. An invitation to a plumber, a dinner guest, or a landlord does not open the door to one's home to a warrantless search by a police officer. Wright is not in the clear yet, however, because the high court looked into only applying the third-party intervention doctrine as a to the warrantless search of a home. Says, we therefore remand the case back to the trial court to evaluate whether the initial unlawful search tainted the later consensual search. What they see at the first part taint the, um, cons- the consent to search form. The ACLU, which had filed amicus briefs in support of suppressing the evidence against the right, of course, lauded the court's decision. This is pretty, this is an interesting way this played out, Peter, because you've got, and you don't, you don't need to go through the plain view doctrine and what the consent was and then what the warrant, how that plays in everything, because there's three different points on this, Peter. Right. You know, it is interesting uh, because it does show that people are still entitled to rights under the Constitution, both the state and federal law, even when you would think that, hey, listen, you know, you, you know that there's something bad in there. Why shouldn't the police go in and just, you know, seize it? Because the landlord told them, isn't that enough? I mean, isn't that reasonable suspicion? Um, and, and shouldn't they be permitted to just go in? And so people that are are, um, thinking along the lines of, well, this is a criminal and he needs to be dealt with. So really, he shouldn't have, the police shouldn't have had to apply for a warrant because perhaps that would have given that, that, you know, Ricky Wright or Ricky Wrong or whatever his name was, uh, an opportunity (laughs) to hide the contraband. And, And that does happen. But what I think is the more important issue is that in the interest of justice, everybody in the United States is entitled to the same level of protection. And so while here you have a situation with somebody who, yes, there's contraband, yes, there's illegal weapons and drugs, you wouldn't want a police officer going into your house and searching without a warrant simply because you live next to a neighbor who is disgruntled because you park in front of their house and they call the police and they say, I saw you know, Susie with uh, you know, marijuana plants in her house. You want to have the the police have to obtain a search warrant for that. So just don't just don't agree to it. They come to you. We'd like to search your property. Well, then go get a warrant. It's basically what you tell them. Right. So now the idea here of of um, having to go get a warrant, it's a legal step that requires the police to tell the court, tell a judge that they've got probable cause to believe that somebody is doing something illegal, improper. There's contraband, there's weapons, there's drugs, there's drug paraphernalia. They go, they apply for the warrant, they explain why the judge issues the search warrant, 
And then they can go knock on the door, and then they can go search the premises. Now, if they were to have knocked on the door, opened the door based upon the landlord's issue his or, or observation, and in front of them on a coffee table was contraband in plain view, meaning they're standing at the doorway and 15 feet away from them, they can clearly see. Well, at that point, being that it's in plain view, they could then go in without a warrant and seize the property and make an arrest. So that's the plain view doctrine, but otherwise you need to obtain a warrant. And I think that, you know, the reason that civil liberties groups and the civil liberty union here, the ACLU, gets involved is because while some of them believe that they're they're too left, you know, too far to too far leftist, um, and I, I agree to some extent, but they also are trying to protect the rights of every citizen. And so I certainly would not want to see that warrant requirement change or lessen because I think everybody is entitled to be innocent until, until proven guilty. So to clarify, you, you, you gave a really good example, but I want to clarify what would happen. Cops show up at your door, you open the door behind you on a coffee table is a pile of cocaine. They see the pile of cocaine now in plain view, so they can go in and seize that. But in and, order to search the do what I'm sorry and arrest you arrest you but right. to search the rest of the premises they have to obtain a warrant is that correct that's correct yeah okay unless there's if there's someone in the back room screaming that you, they're being held hostage there's a different situation but right. <laughs> right so there you go then that's i think that's you know people don't i i would think if, if it was ever a point where i'm in that much trouble <laughs> Uh, my first call is to my lawyer <laughs> or someone that may want to be my lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never a bad idea. No, especially, you know, with criminal <laughs> stuff. I mean, that's that's why I've always stayed away from criminal law in my practice because, you know, it's it's a seedy side of life and it's just something that, you know, it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's kind of dark and depressing in a way to have to deal with people involved in situations like that. Uh, and, and you're dealing with life and death, and you know, just as an aside, as a lawyer, you never know with a criminal client whether or not they're really telling you the truth. Sure. Uh, it's very challenging because you wouldn't want to see an innocent man go to jail, nor would you want to see a guilty man set free. So for me, it's always been a moral thing. That's why I've never gone into that area. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, defending someone you know probably did it, but you, you defend them with vigor and <laughs> yeah, and and uh, it was the word I'm looking for uh, without bias. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Martha Stewart. Speaking of vigor, her magazine being sued for seven point seven million dollars. CourthouseNews.com telling us that the printer of Martha Stewart Living magazine claims the media company owes it seven point seven million dollars for forcing it to offer a price discount uh, not in its contract, which in, that just makes me wonder in the first place. R.R. Donnelly and Sons sued Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia on Tuesday in Cook County Court. Donnelly claims it entered into a contract with Martha Stewart Living for printing and production of two of her magazines in 2006, Martha Stewart Living and Martha Stewart Weddings. The contract guaranteed Donnelly $28.6 million in manufacturing revenue through the terms of the agreement, i.e. June 30, 2017, according to the brief complaint. But Donnelly claims that last year, Martha Stewart Living entered into a new advertising and circulation contract with Meredith Corp., 
which is not a party to the lawsuit, and told Donnelly that Meredith would not honor the pricing terms of the printing contract. So in a nutshell, Martha Stewart put a person, or Martha Stewart Divisions, put a person between her and her printer. Consequently, Donnelly had been forced to provide Meredith with a pricing discount, not only on the MSLO magazines, but on additional publications that Donnelly is printing for Meredith in order to mitigate its damages and retain its work printing the MSLO magazines, which is Martha Stewart Living uh, 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 Omnimedia. The complaint states the discount will cost Donnelly $5.6 million on the Martha Stewart magazines through June 2017 and $2.1 million on non-Martha Stewart magazines through 2022, the printer says. The MSLO has breached the, er, the uh, agreement by refusing to compensate or agree to compensate Donnelly for the lost profits. They claim it seeks $7.7 million for breach of contract. How in the heck does this even happen? This doesn't make sense to me at all. Here you've got Martha Stewart magazine, and they have a contract with with R.R. Donnelly and says all of a sudden Meredith Corp comes and says, oh, by the way, you're going to price it this way. What the heck happened here? A lot of things could have happened here, and this happens so frequently, and, and I'll explain why I think this happened in a second. But the idea here is that when you're dealing with business and, and business like Martha Stewart-sized business, um, what's right doesn't always come into play. What, what does come into play is revenue and how much money are we going to be saving. So here, clearly, based upon the facts of this article, it shows that there was a contract. Right? In order to have a contract, you need to have offer, acceptance. There needs to be a meeting of the minds, you know, and, and you, need to, um, you need to have this meeting of the minds means essentially that you understand that I made an offer, I accepted it. We understand the same terms. We understand what we were going to do. Um, this is a case where it's a written contract, and if the contract does, in fact, guarantee $28.6 million, you'd have to look at the other language in the contract to see whether or not there was a loophole. But what could have happened here is that Martha Stewart uh, Corporation looked at this and said, if we continue with Donnelly, we're going to owe X amount of million dollars over the next few years. We don't like what they're doing, or we just think that they're priced too high. So what we're going to do is bring in this other group, and they're going to start running things. Ultimately, they'll take over. And if the lawsuit seeks $7.7 million, that means that they got paid the majority, you know, $20 million that they received. Sure. So you're looking at $7.7 million, but maybe Martha Stewart's company saves more than $7.7 million by breaching the contract. So if the demand is 7.7 and they think that maybe they can settle for 7.7 or below, maybe $5 million, maybe they're going to save significantly more money by breaching that contract. So they did oh, it all okay. on purpose. Because if I have to continue to pay you out, I'm going to pay you 7.7. But if I bring this new company in, I'm going to save money and so if I have to pay you $5 million to go away, fine, because I'm still saving money. So that could be an issue. That could be why it was done that way. But So there's no, uh, there's, there's no fallout from them making that decision. The, the, the only thing that they could possibly get out of this is compensatory damages? Yeah, really, there's nothing other than money at stake here. Okay. The one interesting point that you mentioned is the fact that Donnelly has not sued Meredith. There are times when 
a company uh, or an individual, but we're talking about business, goes in and deliberately tries to sabotage your contract with your end user. So Martha Stewart being the end user, you being the contractor, and another company comes in and not just kind of prices you and says, listen, if you go with me, I'll offer this, but knowingly and intentionally sort of sabotages you, starts working with, with the other company, the end user. It's called tortious interference with business. So there is a claim, uh-huh. cause of action for tortious interference. But in this instance so far with Meredith not being sued, it seems more like a deliberate breach by Martha Stewart probably to save money. Hmm. Interesting. And the thing, the thing that it's it's just a business decision. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just we can we could save ten million, but we're going to pay pay seven, so we're still in the good for three. Right. Exactly. It's just sure. a business okay. decision. Interesting. I'll just see how that one plays out because it sure seems from the, from the top level, from what we've read, cut and dry. They yeah, they're definitely in breach of contract, so they're going to pay it. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, you have to look at the contract and you've got to decide, is there a loophole? Is there something here that says, you know, that uh, they can get out if, you know, if, for example, Donnelly uh, failed to provide X amount of issues oh, or okay. if Donnelly was delayed or if Donnelly's costs increased or, you know, there's all these different factors that could come into a contract, which is why when any, anybody comes and says, listen, I need to know whether or not there's a breach of contract claim, the attorney who they're going to always needs to say to that person, I need to see the contract first. Sure, sure. <laughs> and hope there is one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, this, this, this was an interesting article. I, I'm not sure how this all falls together. Um, an inventor is fighting HP for, anti, for an anti-blink patent. San Francisco Courthouse News.com. Talking about Hewlett Packard falsely claims ownership for a patent of an invention that eliminates blink-related closed eyes, a former employee claims in court. David Johnston had worked for HP for 21 years when he filed an invention disclosure for the technology about eight years ago. Johnston says he filed several invention disclosures during his two decades with the company, not all of which related to plaintiff's area of work or even defendant's areas of business, but with which plaintiff was required to disclose pursuant to his employment agreement. He has to tell them what he's inventing. He says he filed the disclosure for his Blink invention about six months before he left HP, which was in May of 2005. The technology, this is kind of freaky, uses composite images to correct for blinking by replacing closed eyes with open eyes from a separate image of the same person. I mean, you've got the facial recognition technology. This is basically (laughs) that on steroids. Johnson's attorney, Amy Anderson, told Courthouse News in an email, Johnson filed a patent for the invention in 2006 and was granted one in 2010. Shortly thereafter, he says in the federal complaint, he tried to offer the patent for sale to the public through a broker, but HP contacted the broker and claimed it owned the patent, so the broker put the sale on hold. Johnson petitioned the Patent and Trademark Office in 2011 for sole reassignment of the patent, and it was granted to him, specifically correcting an unauthorized assignment of the patent to HP, according to the complaint. 
HP, though, continues to assert ownership of the patent and refuses to acknowledge Johnson's right to it, though it can show no attempt to use, sell, or continue to develop the technology that it is the subject matter of the patent, Johnson says in the lawsuit. His attorney, Anderson, added HP has no rights to the patent since the invention was conceived on Mr. Johnson's own time without any HP resources and does not remotely relate to any of the work Mr. Johnson did for HP. Mr. Johnson has gone to lengths to avoid litigation and simply have HP provide written acknowledgement of Mr. Johnson's rights so that title may be cleared in the eyes of the auction house and they can actually sell it to any potential buyers. But HP continues to claim ownership despite the fact that, to our knowledge, HP has not used the technology and has no intention of doing so. HP cannot be reached for a comment. Johnson seeks declaratory and injunctive relief, punitive damages for intentional interference with contractual relations, and negligent and intentional interference with prospective economic relations. First of all, that technology is just creepy. It is um, creepy. Now you have a picture <laughs> of something that never blinks. <laughs> your, do your kids sleep with their eyes open? It's the same kind of thing. Um, but are there a lot of agreements that people enter into when you work for a company similar to HP where you can develop something and you have to let them know, and then you end up in a situation where they could steal it. You know, yes and no, because most often what happens, th- this is a unique uh, story if you believe what he is saying, um, that he developed it on his own. Because if he developed it on his own, then he probably does have rights to it. But most often, when you're employed by somebody and you're doing work and you're creating something, whether you're an engineer or an architect or a computer tech or whatever, a de- developer, designer, and you come up with something uh, in the course of your employment, even remotely related to a project that you were working on, the company generally owns that technology or that invention. And oftentimes, especially in the tech industry, you'll see contracts when you are going to um, you know, either come on board as a contract employee or if you're just going to be an at-will employee, you still have a, a job offer letter or uh, terms and conditions of employment, or it's in the handbook or something, and it, and it lays out whose rights are protected. Obviously, it's the company's. Who has the right to creations or inventions or developments? The company. And oftentimes, that language is very broad. So unless you are at home in your garage doing something that has nothing connected to your work, I think that any company that realizes you've created something, is going to challenge you and say that it's theirs. And more often than not, it is theirs because an employee will get this idea with something that they're working on at their company, go home and make it better, and then try to market that or sell that. And that's, that's when these lawsuits happen. But if you believe, Johnson, that this has nothing to do with HP Tech, then maybe he's right. And it's also interesting that the court originally overturned it and said, you know, that, that he was entitled to it. So that sure. is interesting, but it completely, I think this is uncharacteristic of most of these claims. And it almost seems that HP just ignored the court's findings. Yeah. I think that, you know, HP is so large that money's really not an issue and they're, you know, must, they must see value in this patent, which is interesting. And um, I mean, I don't, I don't understand how it would come into play. Because I wouldn't want to look at somebody who doesn't blink, right? That's just freaky. But <laughs> <laughs> it's all—it's all those family photos retakes you have to worry about. When oh, Johnny blinked, and 
Now we yeah. have to take it again. I'm to get back. You know, but the nice thing is you can always check on your screen now. So if I get my youngest kid to smile properly in a picture, I'd, if he could invent that technology, now we'd be somewhere. Yeah, yeah the perfect <laughs> smile technology. Yeah. Is, is there a way to protect yourself in a situation like this? You know, I think that you have to, I would suggest that if you are going to start developing something that has nothing to do with your company, I would suggest that you speak with a lawyer sooner rather than later. I have this idea. I'd like to file for a patent or a provisional patent. Um, you know, how would I do this? Uh, you know, what do I need to do to protect myself as I move move forward? I'm working for this company, but what I'm developing doesn't have any impact with the company. And I would try, because look, if this technology takes off for whatever reason, uh, it could be millions and millions of dollars that this guy could be entitled to. Millions and millions of dollars that HP might collect. You know, you just don't sure. know. It's always better off to try to, to, you know, get somebody to help you right off the bat. And I would, in this situation... I would want to look for a patent lawyer. No, I wouldn't well, that's right. yeah. a patent lawyer. Well, what about what about those invent help people? Are they are they just kind of the ambulance chasers of the patent law world? You know, they're interesting because I don't know anything about them. I've seen them, and and I actually I knew somebody that was trying to design something that was interesting, um, and he went to them. And there was a lot of confusion on his part because I think that he was afraid that they were going to steal his idea, steal his invention. And I looked at some of the documents with him, and I couldn't say without you know some level of doubt that they might not be able to. So he ultimately didn't go with them. But um, I don't know. There are a lot of services out there where they'll help you get through the patent process. And, and that's, you know valuable because a patent lawyer is not cheap. Um, but I would always try to do it the right way, especially if you think that there's some significant money-making ability in your invention. Because, you know, you, no, go the, you go the cheap route, and then what happens when your invention takes off, and now you're, um, you know, in litigation for, for two years? Yeah, it, <laughs> it starts... <laughs> you, you, it loses its effectiveness, the invention, at that yeah. point. Definitely. <laughs> All of a sudden, yeah, the the the, the no-blink photography is gone because, yeah, people just evolved to the point where they don't blink. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there there are ways to protect yourself, and that's the most important thing is get someone involved that can, that can help you. Yeah. Um, we talked about – go ahead, I'm sorry. From the beginning, right from the beginning, get somebody involved. Exactly. We talked about this next story a little bit, if I remember correctly. Um, Hatton Garden, London. Eight men charged in connection with last month's so-called Hatton Garden heist in London's jewelry district are due to appear in court Thursday, according to uh, London's Metropolitan Police. The suspects, aged 48 to 76, were charged with conspiracy to burgle. An interesting word. Uh, according to a statement from the Metro Police on Wednesday, the eight men were due to appear Thursday before Westminster Magistrates Court in central London. A ninth, a ninth suspect was has been released on bail pending further inquiries. All nine were arrested in a series of raids on Tuesday. A tenth suspect, 42-year-old British man, was arrested Thursday morning in Essex outside of London for conspiracy to burgle, a police statement has said. 
The heist was over Easter weekend and included the theft of gems and cash from a safe deposit company in the heart of London's jewelry district. Police haven't given a, given a precise value for what was taken. Numerous British news organizations put the value of the loss in the hundreds of thousands of pounds, but a former police official in London has speculated it could run to 200 million pounds or $310 million, an estimate widely reported by the news media. Uh, these are guys, they basically carry this out in front of CCTV cameras, closed circuit, uh, which apparently no one was watching. <laughs> been reports of power cuts in the area of days before. No evidences have been produced for any connection to that. An alarm on Good Friday believed to have alerted police, but it was judged to require no further response. Uh, drilling could be heard across the street in the small hours of Good Friday, according to neighbors, but the raid remained undetected until office staff returned to their desks on the Tuesday after Easter. One trader told the Sunday Times, the thieves, thieves may have stuck previously or struck previously in an identical rain on the same street. So this is all from the prior article. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, if this is $310 million, this is uh, one of those Ocean's Eleven stories. Yeah, you have to be in pretty good shape at 76 to burgle. <laughs> I look like. When I think yeah, of no, burglar, no pictures were posted yet. <laughs> all I can think of is the Hamburglar. Remember the Hamburglar? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Is he making a comeback or no? <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a commercial over the weekend, and they said, rubble, rubble. And I thought, oh, it's a Hamburglar. Did you see that? I'm back. I did not. You were off the grid. I, 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 I was off. I was very much off the grid this weekend, hiding in the woods. <laughs> you know what's um, an interesting thought that I had with respect to this story? Years ago, when I, I first started working as a lawyer, I was working with companies that insured jewelry dealers. And um, you would be surprised in New York City how many times one guy, because I, I don't know, I mean, look, this was also 10 years ago or so, but they used to carry jewelry down the street a few blocks because they were only going to another area on the same block, and somebody would burgle them. They would, they would rob them. They'd hold them up. <laughs> burgle them. <laughs> And they'd steal the jewels. And um, we were doing a lot of insurance fraud defense because... Oh, sure. What find, yeah, is that, you know, somebody would call up and they'd be like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm uh, Jimmy, I'm going down the street at 2 o'clock with, you know, $10,000 worth of jewelry. Why don't you, you smack me over the head with a bat? And then Jimmy would come <laughs> take the, the jewels. And then later on that night, they'd be like, oh, wow, this is great. So that was going on a lot. So hopefully, which I'm sure all of these large jewelry dealers and, and, and stores, they all have significant insurance, even for oh, sure. us this large. So I'm not too worried about them. No. <laughs> uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can actually nail someone on this thing. I would like to see the 76-year-old. If you find a picture of the 76-year-old burglar, I would like to see that. How's it work? I'm getting that for you. <laughs> well, speaking of around 76 years old, Bill Cosby sued for defamation by Janice Dickinson. I wouldn't expect anyone else to sue him. Um, in November, supermodel Janice Dickinson. Yeah, you've seen her on, that was the VH1 show. Uh, they all had to live in the same house together. I can't remember now. And I think Vanilla Ice was on it, but she's a train wreck. Um, said in an interview that Bill Cosby sexually assaulted her in 1982 after the two had dinner in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. 
Gosby's attorney, Martin Singer, immediately called Dickinson's story a lie, quote-unquote, and said it contradicted her own autobiography and a 2002 interview she did with the New York Observer. Now Dickinson is suing Cosby for defamation, saying the comedian hurt her professionally and personally in denying her rape accusation and calling her a liar. Want justice done, she said. I want my lawyer to depose Bill Cosby, get him on the stand and in front of a jury and let the law decide. And maybe I can continue working. Bloom also weighed in. Her lawyer, Lisa Bloom, calling Dickinson a liar is a defamatory statement under the law. And that's the mistake Bill Cosby made. We'll talk about that in a second. That's according to Bloom. It was too late for her to sue for rape or for drugging, but once he, through his representatives, called her a liar, she had a fresh claim for defamation, and that's the lawsuit that we filed today. Bloom said they asked Cosby to retract his claim that she lied, but he refused to. She said Cosby's team has 30 days to respond to their lawsuit, and they plan to seek his de- deposition as early as possible. Cosby's lawyers could not be reached Wednesday for response. Uh, Dickinson's lawsuit filed Wednesday in L.A. County Superior Court seeks unspecified damages. Basically, she has to make him say that he, she, he, does he have to prove that he didn't drug and rape her, or does <laughs> she have to prove that he did? <laughs> well, it's her burden of proof. So yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. He he's now you know he's got this this statement. I mean, I would say um, you know as a defense, first of all, that my opinion is you're a liar. And that this is a lie. Um, that's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. I, I This is interesting, though, because if you play it out the way that I think she wants it to go, okay, I can't get you for rape or for drugging me, but now I'm going to get you for calling me a liar, and you're going to have to show that it's true because the defense of defamation is truth. So, all right, show me that it's true. And then what? You know, she's... She's trying to get him to admit that he raped her. So that that's it's silly and crazy all at the same time. And and it just is a, a publicity seeking lawsuit. Anybody that would go on no. Yeah, really. <laughs> I wish I wish I remembered the name of that show you were talking about because it was like I'm C list celebrities washed up as <laughs> All living in a crazy house. <laughs> but you know, oh, what if, was that stupid show? I don't know, but if the real life, the surreal life. Yes, that's what yes. it was. Vanilla Ice. I think Ron Jeremy mm-hmm. was on it. Yeah. So yeah, it was Christopher Knight and then his girlfriend, well, wife now. Yeah, they had a, a Vern Troyer, the the, the mini me fellow. A lot of yeah, fun yeah. people. Yeah. So if you're gonna go on that show, <laughs> you're looking for some attention. So I don't think that uh, I think this is probably just attention. You ruined you ruined my career. No, I'm guessing your lip implants did. Um, <laughs> the um, well, the funny thing is, this even going to make it to a courtroom? Is he going to get deposed, or is his lawyer going to do something? Or better yet, what would you do? What would you file to uh, make this go away? Well, first of all, I mean, I'd file a motion to dismiss, and I would allege that you know it's opinion or it was um you know something that was it depends did he say it's a lie or you're a liar i would try to play with some some semantics there and then i would just argue that you know in my opinion it was a lie and leave it at that and see where the motion to dismiss goes so maybe you get it dismissed right off the bat 
If it doesn't get, get dismissed on the motion to dismiss, then you're now into the discovery phase where theoretically he could be deposed, which would be a fascinating deposition. (laughs) Could you imagine the questions? Did you rape her? What is he going to say? So, um, Even if he raped a hundred women, even if he raped a hundred women, the thing is that she's got to prove he raped her. Yeah. Yeah. In order for for his claim of her to be a liar not to be true. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's why I think that this is just I'm trying to remember. I think I know I think I remember seeing Lisa Bloom. I, I'm wondering if it's the same woman that I'm thinking of. But um I don't know. This is a, a a lawsuit that I probably would not have wanted to get involved with because it just seems like a waste of time. But I think, you know, people in Hollywood do things completely differently for different reasons, including the lawyers. You know, it's more of a... I didn't know her. (laughs) Her mom is Gloria Allred. No, who? Lisa Bloom? Lisa Bloom. Huh. According to all things true on the internet, Wikipedia. Parents. Have it. (laughs) (laughs) Parents, Gloria Allred and uh, Peyton Huddleston Bray Jr., well, there now that explains everything. <laughs> wow, interesting. <laughs> I guess. Oh well, we'll see. Where, we'll see where that ends up. Which trash can? Um, <laughs> something more interesting, or at least from a standard of what people end up being, they're forced to do unwittingly sometimes. Florida's Valencia College sued over forced vaginal exams. Um, two college students say they were forced to submit to transvaginal probes as part of their classroom training to learn how to perform the medical procedure. The details are outlined in a federal lawsuit filed Thursday in Orlando against Valencia College and three instructors. It alleges that medical diagnostic students at the college were forced to submit to the examination of their sexual organs under threat of having their grades reduced or of being blacklisted by future employers. The three defendants named in the lawsuit, Maureen Bugnaki, Linda Shaheen, and Barbara Ball. None have responded to any of CNN's requests for comment. Peer physical examination is an accepted practice in the medical field, but several recent reports cited by the U.S. National Library of Medicine mention a growing need for obviously clear policies regarding peer physical examination at medical schools. Valencia positioned these transvaginal probes as voluntarily or voluntary. But its actual policy and practice was that they were not according to the lawsuit. The suit also describes weekly probes, pardon the pun, for students in the program as saying that they endured these invasive probes without a modicum of privacy. Plaintiffs would disrobe, disrobe in a restroom, drape themselves in a towel, and traverse the stenography classroom in full view of instructors and other students. A student would place a condom over the probe and then apply generous amounts of lubrication to the probe. In some cases, the student would have to sexually stimulate plaintiffs in order to facilitate inserting the probe into plaintiffs' vaginas, the lawsuit alleges. The suit says the women experienced discomfort and embarrassment each time they had to endure this forced probing of their sexual organs. In one instance, according to the lawsuit, one of the defendants, Barbara Ball, made inappropriate comments to a student who was undergoing a probe. Defendant Ball's comments can only be described as bizarre, during some of these forced probing sessions, the lawsuit states. Attorney Chris Dillingham, who was representing the two women who filed the suit, said, I filed a complaint in federal court because we are dealing with the government, Valencia State College. This is a constitutional federal rights claim. 
the vaginal probes and my client's right to refuse them without retribution, which is violate their First and Fourth Amendment rights. Excuse me. Dillingham said his claims, his clients have endured significant suffering because of the forced probes. Although it was stated in orientation it was voluntary, it became increasingly clear it was not. This is a very expensive program. These are young women. I'm not a doctor, but they have suffered significant psychological damage, Dillingham said. Now, Carol Trainer, the PR representative for Valencia College, said the school has not been served with the lawsuit, so it would not be able to comment. However, with regard to Valencia's Diagnostic Medical Sonography Associate Degree Program, the college issued the following statement. The use of volunteers, including fellow students, for medical sonography training is a nationally accepted practice. Valencia College's sonography program has upheld the highest standards with respect to ultrasound scanning for educational purposes, including voluntary participation and professional supervision by faculty in a controlled laboratory setting. Nonetheless, we continue to review this practice and others to ensure that they are effective and appropriate for the learning environment. There's our back door out. Um, this is um, what do they got to prove here? I mean, this is going to be something where is this in writing in the in the, in the course? Uh, synopsis where they hey you're gonna have to pony up some organs here we can take a look at you so you can learn what you're doing or this has been kind of like on those hey, if you don't participate eh, i can't see where i can give you an a you know it's kind of weird if you take what they're saying it seems really invasive and unethical and inappropriate but <clears throat> i think if you it all depends on how this plays out. If you if they're telling the truth, and and this was a group of instructors who thought this was you know just great fun, and they were going to uh, in, indulge their uh, sexual uh, issues while at work, this is the best way to do it. Then obviously the students are right. But if this is a nationally accepted practice, and they did everything at Valencia in accordance with that nationally accepted practice, and there's nowhere in anything that says you will get a bad grade if you don't do this, then I think it becomes more challenging for the women, and I think that you'd have to rely on some of the testimony from the other people in the classroom. Because if you started deposing other people in the classroom and saying, was it your understanding that if you didn't submit to this examination that you'd receive a poor grade, if enough people in that class say, no, I've never heard that before, or no, that wasn't said to us, no, that wasn't implied, then I think these women have a losing claim. So this is one of the cases I think that Valencia is going to want to defend if they do their own investigation and realize that they haven't hired perverts, then they want to defend it <laughs> and let that testimony come out in deposition. Have male students of the sonography program been summarily graded poorly? I don't know. Because <laughs> I guarantee they're not going to submit to a vaginal exam. They No, I, men will not do that. <laughs> as much as they may want to. Um, but are they going to have to go back maybe and, and, and pull studies from, hey, let's look at the last five years and say, what, is there a pattern? Can they establish a pattern and get by with this? Well, you know, they could. I mean, but I, I don't think that um, there is a lot because if there was, it probably would have been referenced in this lawsuit that this is an ongoing, uh, pervasive problem that the school has, has dealt mm -hmm. with for years and years. I think that more likely this is 
who knows? You, you just don't know. It could be a group of women. I'm not saying that, that this didn't happen to them, but there's always mm-hmm. that possibility of somebody saying, look, let's, this isn't right. I don't like this. Let's make some money. I don't know. But I think really everybody else in that classroom, they're the ones that are going to have the truth because you're going to have the instructors with their truths and the girls with their truths and then everybody else there who witnessed it. That's, I think, going to be the most telling set of facts. Hmm. Interesting. I say it's it's something that it's it's going to be. I assume hard to hard to prove. Unless yeah, I mean they're going to something gonna have to, in front of everybody. They're going to have to launch a, a probe and and you know start investigating and not that pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not at all. So we'll have to keep. Um, at least one eye on that. Um, a man claiming he was targeted for extortion in Miami. Courthousenews.com uh, letting us know that a Venezuelan businessman claims in a lawsuit that he was extorted for $5 million by a shareholder of the Doral newspaper and Doral TV. Um, this is interesting because of the media's involvement. In a complaint filed in the Mia, the, uh, Mia, 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 pardon me, Miami Federal Court on May 13th, plaintiff Gianfranco Arandon claims that he was he conducts international transactions and, and exports products manufactured in the United States to Venezuela. Over the last few years, South Florida has become the epicenter for trade and commerce between the two countries, Rondon says. Defendant Doral Newspaper publishes a printed and an online newspaper known as Doral News, and Defendant Doral TV operates a television station that broadcasts to the Miami-Dade County community via Comcast Cable Channel 84. That's where you'll find Wayne's World. Both Doral News and Doral TV are widely popular among the Venezuelan community in South Florida and in Venezuela, the complaint says. Rondon claims that after defendant Gianfranco Napolitano, another wealthy Venezuelan businessman, acquired a large number of shares from Doral newspaper and Doral TV, he commenced a scheme using the newspaper, the TV station, and their employees, specifically defendants Patricia Paleo and Jonathan Leon, to extort him. Ron, it says that Napolitano published a series of false and defamatory stories to negatively affect his business in order to force him to pay $5 million. Plaintiff then alleges that in January 2015, Napolitano's business associate, Tulio Capriles Hernandez, contacted him to try to sell him Napolitano's interest in Doral newspaper and Doral TV for $5 million. However, due to plaintiff's refusal to pay such a high amount of money, defendants Paleo and Leon made public slanderous stories about him. Rondon says that Paleo published unverified facts, which I'm trying to figure out what an unverified fact would be, in the Doral News online version and in his Twitter account, which made the readers believe that he has family ties with high-ranking political figures in Venezuela. He also says Paleo accused him of criminal acts, such as being the bag man and managing the enormous fortune of Diosdado Cabello, the president of the National Assembly of Venezuela. The complaint alleges that Defendant Leon led the public to believe that plaintiff worked with Miguel Eduardo Rodriguez Torres, a Venezuelan government official who has been involved in crimes such as Venezuelan crimes against Venezuelan citizens and human rights violations, including the death of more than 40 students. Rondon says that around the same time that the false stories about him were being published, Defendant Napolitano visited the home of Carlos Aradas, owner of Doral News and Doral TV, and asked him to notify plaintiff that if he paid the requested $5 million, the defamation against him would stop. How convenient. During the visit, Napolitano offered Aradas 
$1 million if he would cooperate with the extortion against Rondon, but he refused and immediately notified plaintiff about Napolitano's scheme. Now we have a witness. However, since he declined to participate, Napolitano threatened him by texting him Omerta, the word Omerta, which is a reference to the Mafia Code of Silence, and stating that those who violate Omerta face death, the complaint states. Plaintiff says the defendant's false and defamatory statements have been subject, have subjected him to distrust, hatred, contempt, ridicule, and obloquy uh, <laughs> among business partners, associates, and the public in general. Defendant's scheme constitutes a pattern of racketeering activity to maintain an enterprise that is engaged in interstate or foreign commerce. Plaintiff says Rondon seeks compensatory damages on claims of violation of the RICO statute and defamation. This wow. guy's got a lot going on. Yeah, the um, and a lot of people involved. Usually, if you want to do something this stupid, you keep the players to a minimum. Um, can, because he involved, obviously, with the RICO statute, because it's 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 across state lines or, or outside of the country, and it becomes organized. Um, where does his with the TV station and the um, and the newspaper, does that just make it easier for him? I mean, obviously it doesn't spread the lies, but at what point does that become was it slander or libel against him in the first point? Yeah, you know, I think he has a good point for defamation, but my analysis of this is that when somebody texts me the word uh, Ometra, I'm not doing anything because... Uh, <laughs> You know, you got the mafia. <laughs> well, you're in New Jersey. You ought to think about it. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> well, I would just keep my mouth shut and just say, okay. Um, I mean, look, it, it clearly looks like it is extortion, and extortion uh, along these lines can be uh, something that is actionable under the RICO Act. Um, but this is, you know, you're dealing with Venezuela. This is not an easy case at all. And this is something that... Um, you know, comes politic, politics and, and political uh, agendas come into play here whenever you're dealing with a lawsuit like this. And this is why I often say, you know, law isn't always about justice. You might think that this is how it should be, but there are so many other factors that come into play. And this, to me, is not going to be one that's decided just based upon the law and fact. I think facts will be twisted and testimony will be contorted, there'll be fabrications, and then you know what's really true or not. So this one's a hard one. This one's not one that I'd want to be involved in at all. <laughs> the interesting part of it is, is using the media to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know and, and that makes me think of, you know, you, you've got uh, CBS recently here in an apology. Uh, was it Lara Logan, who I, I absolutely worship? Um, and and her story on what was it? It was Benghazi, you know. And so you've got these, and you've got Brian Williams, and yeah. you have Bill O'Reilly, um, which I don't put Bill O'Reilly and Brian Williams in the same category. One's a reporter, and and one's an opinionist. Um, but what you have is, you know, these guys. I don't say skirt the truth, but you know how much of what they put out there can be labeled as maybe slanderous and what protects them? And, and how does that relate to these guys? What did they put out there that 
may or may not have been true, and how do they protect themselves against that? And you come back and say, oh, yeah, we messed up. Is that all you need? You know, I think it depends on who you are. I really do. I think that, um, and, and the extent and the pervasiveness of what you're doing. I think that in this case, I think that they're going to say, well, look, the defamation isn't really the issue. It's the extortion that's the issue. Sure. And, and you're making these statements. I don't even care whether they're true or false. It's it's the extortion. But in, in situations like Brian Williams, I mean, um, it, it's not true what he said. It's not defamation either, though. So, sure. you know, I think that the the First Amendment and a lot of the um, privileges as reporters that people have, I think, can often be stretched. You know, that's why people say the word allegedly all the time, because as long as you're saying the word allegedly, uh, <laughs> you are... You're okay. I mean, I remember when I was in college, I was a, a, a journalist, uh, journalism and communication, broadcast communications major. And that was the first thing we learned in journalism class, which was you always say allegedly because you are, you know, reporting what you have heard or learned, but you don't know if it's really true. And by using the word allegedly, it protects you. And I think that sometimes some people can play the system so far. Uh, like Brian Williams, where you eventually get tagged and, you know, you've just sort of gone outside the bounds of what really protects reporters. But there is a lot of freedom that reporters have. And that's, yeah, that, that was more of the point. Yeah, these guys and, and, and gals that sometimes, um, I don't say there's not a degree of truth to it, but it seems that, and, and the, one, the one thing I always love is Fox doesn't, their headlines sometimes have question marks after them. <laughs> <I> never noticed. <laughs> oh, you know, and, and, you know, Obama was playing basketball during this meeting. Was he, you know, and, <laughs> and, and then they build it. Then they build a story around that headline with the question marks and kind of more of a, well, if you were doing this, this is what would have happened. And, and I noticed that and it's not that I don't prefer one to the other, whether it's MSNBC or whether it's Fox or or either way, I just I found that I find that I find that interesting about Fox. If you watch them on TV, and and, and there's always that question mark in their in their uh, their lower third graphics. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> um, well, apparently no question marks here. An antitrust suit against a spark plug cartel. <laughs> For some reason, I can just picture Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> Robert Bosch and two other companies fixed spark plug prices, according to CourtNews.com. Around the world, auto parts distributors claim in a federal antitrust class action. That's a fact. Distributors from Rhode Island and Connecticut claim that Bosch, the world's largest auto parts supplier, NGK Spark Plug Company, the world's largest manufacturer of spark plugs, and Denso Corp. Randy, <laughs> this, this the term makes me laugh. Spark Plug Cartel that allocated, supplied, rigged bids, and fixed prices. Victims include General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler and led to a criminal probe from the DOJ. Their lead plaintiff, DBA Tri-State Automotive Waterhouse, says in the May 18th complaint. He claims that the conspiracy began as early as 2000, long after I was out of the supply chain arena. After, so far, 34 companies and 29 executives 
have pleaded guilty or agreed to plead guilty and agreed to pay a total of $2.5 billion in criminal fines, according to the complaint. So we've got some traction. Citing a Department of Justice statement, the plaintiffs call it the largest criminal investigation the Justice Department has ever pursued, both in terms of scope and potential volume of commerce affected by the alleged, there's that word, illegal conduct. Bosch is based in Germany, the other defendants in Japan. Bosch has agreed to pay $57.8 million in criminal fines, and they did that on March 31st. NGK entered its plea in October of last year. This Could this filter down to the customer? You know, unlikely. You and unlikely. I, I guess. Yeah. Unlikely. I think that this is limited to, um, you know, a, a, an antitrust lawsuit amongst the manufacturers and the companies and the distributors. I don't think that this gets because I, I'm trying to think of how an end user might have a claim against Bosch or or you know NJK. And I can't make the connection where the end user would be able to um, to have some sort of legal cause of action or claim. So I oh, think okay. I think that this is just between these companies at, at the level of you know an antitrust class action. It doesn't go anywhere beyond that, and and that none of the actual plaintiffs, um, or not not plaintiffs, but none of the actual consumers have any real legal rights here. Hmm. So it's just about the just just about the big boys. I mean, you start looking at the other products they use almost in exclusivity: you know, tires, brakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How many how many other uh, little monopoly or little little cartels like this are going on? <laughs> you know, we've seen antitrust suits uh, for years and years. Um, Verizon has had antitrust suits. The cable companies, uh, you know, public utilities. And there's this this big um, sort of expectation on the part that the, uh, of consumers that it's going to eventually trickle down and affect them in a positive way. It's going to benefit them. Uh, but I mean, look at look at uh, things like like cable. You know, there was this whole antitrust years and years ago. So you've got cable, you've got satellite TV, you've got Verizon, and has it really, really? made any difference to consumers um and i really don't think it has especially if you look at like at least in this area it's either verizon customers or cable customers and i don't see how it really affected consumers the way that people had thought that it would so i don't see how this would ever affect consumers in the way that you would expect it to now, would this have anything to do with you? Know, you talk about the cable companies and such like that, or the telecoms. Um, Charter agreeing to buy Time Warner this morning or over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Is this something where an antitrust would fall into place as well, where people have the possibility of being exploited? You know, it, it's so complicated to look into whether or not um, something is going to be the subject of an antitrust suit. Is it? Is it? So much of the market share that it leaves people with no freedom of choice. Are you forced to pay the prices that this company is going to demand that you pay? Um, I, in my opinion, I think that oil companies. I mean, that talk sure. about antitrust. But what do we do yeah. about that? Nothing. 
Some days you pay $2.15 at the pump, and, you know, some months you're paying $4. And, and you know, it's that's something that I think needs regulation. But, you know, it's very difficult to regulate that industry because there's too many people making too much money. And well, I'm yeah, you think about, about you look at a gallon of milk. If you paid the same every, you know, if milk went up at one place and it went up at the other place, and then the next place, yeah, there's no collusion there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, there's too much money. And it, it comes down to this idea of, you know, Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Capitalism becomes so overwhelming that you know, maybe a small gas station isn't making a ton of money, but the big players are making billions and billions. Oh. And it, it's even when you look at, and I don't want to get too far afield, but even if you look at some of the wars that, that have, have gone on recently, they've all somehow had some involvement in the Middle East with the idea of strategic partnerships, oil, and yes, freedom, but there's been a lot of stuff that I think that we don't really know about, but there's no doubt that oil has been a factor. People have considered what impact will this have? What impact will this relationship have? You know, so I I don't know. I'd worry more about that. Less. Yeah, the statement has been made that the oil and gas market is so good there should be more companies involved in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's exactly what we need. <laughs> more competition. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm sure do you rent the uh do you, you did your family rent movies? Uh I just do it through iTunes. It's just easier. So you, okay, so you don't use the you don't use the red box or the I don't, but I see them. Hands on. They're super huge, especially down south in Florida. Sure. Um, everyone's got a you know CVS or right. There's a red box outside. No, I looked. I looked into getting one for my store at one point because I'm in the middle of the sticks, and, right. and, and looked at it. Um, well, they are the claim, or they are the claim. They are the the defendant in a class action claim that red box lies about their disc quality. I mean, it's probably hard to man, hard to manage because these boxes are everywhere. They got nobody checking in discs. Well. Redbox deceptively is advertising and renting downgraded discs of being of Blu-ray quality, and it's charging its plaintiffs higher rental prices than those charged for non-Blu-ray DVD discs, a class action claims, according to CourthouseNews.com. Redbox, as we just discussed, operates thousands of these self-service and fully automated rental kiosks in the U.S. You get games and videos, etc., etc. Now, in a lawsuit filed in Miami-Dade County last week, Plaintiffs Stephen Lewis and Philip Burns claim that the downgraded discs are not Blu-ray because they contain poor quality audio and the definition is inferior and, well, we'll call it standard. In case you don't know, DVDs are an older optical storage device, and Blu-rays came out in the mid-2000s and supposedly contain a larger capacity for better graphics. Plaintiffs claim that until December 2nd, 2014, Redbox charged a buck twenty a day for DVDs and a buck fifty for Blu-rays, and they upped it to a buck fifty for DVDs and two dollars for Blu-rays. Now, on its website, Redbox refers to Blu-ray as the name of the next generation high-definition optical disc format. The complaint states, Outerwall Incorporated, which is Redbox's parent company, states on a recent 10Q filed with the SEC that Blu-ray offers consumers a better viewing experience due to the superior picture and sound quality compared to other home video rental formats due to. Blu-ray reviews and advertising from Redbox and other companies, as well as the higher price charged, customers expect the Blu-ray discs that they rent from Redbox to be 
well, of high definition and higher audiovisual quality. However, plaintiffs allege that many of the discs Redbox rent out, rents out as Blu-ray quality and at the higher Blu-ray prices are not Blu-ray quality, according to the complaint. According to that, they say at no point during the rental process, not on the kiosks, not on its website, not on its mobile act, or any other way, Redbox discloses or informs its customers that the discs being rented are not of the advertised quality. Redbox engages in this practice, they say, because the downgraded discs cost Redbox less to acquire than the Blu-ray, which is the higher quality. On December 15, 2014, Plaintiff Lewis claims that he rented a Blu-ray disc of the movie Hunger Games, Catching Fire. However, once he got home, he discovered that the disc contained a standard definition and not a high definition as Blu-ray discs have. Burns went through a similar situation in September 12, 2014, when he also paid for and rented a Blu-ray disc for the movie Divergent, which instead claims he got a downgraded disc and that was not of high quality as he expected. He claims the unmodified Blu-ray discs of the movies that they rented have a uh, 7.1 high-definition soundtrack for Dolby and has eight discrete channels and considered lossless quality. On the other hand, they claim the downgraded discs, they only have 5.1, which, you know, you get your five speakers in your sub. They're considered lossy qualities, or they don't have as high quality. Plaintiffs Burns and Lewis and similarly, and similarly situated persons were duped by Redbox's con- conduct and that they were deprived of the benefits they bargained for and expected to receive by paying the higher rental fee for a Blu-ray disc as compared to non-Blu-ray DVDs, the complaint says. Plaintiffs say that Redbox illegally profited from the rental of downgraded discs as being of Blu-ray quality. Unfortunately, at this time, we have no com- comment to share. They said on an email, Becca Grady from the PR department of Edelman on behalf of Outer Wall Incorporated, Redbox's parent company. Plaintiffs are seeing compensatory damages on claims of violation of the Florida Deceptive and Unfair Trade Practices Act. Um, this, how, do you, how do you prove this? And how do you go back and assign a value to it? This is really tough because I think that, um, well, it's possible, I guess, that Red Redbook um, or Redbox could be doing exactly what's alleged, buying standard definition and throwing them in the Blu-ray slot. I highly doubt that this is worthy of a class action, and I don't think that this is going to be something that's certified unless there's a smoking gun because how do you know that this is an error on the part of the person refilling the sure. red box. You know, sure. is it possible? I'm sure that there are times when somebody has purchased a Blu-ray disc and out has popped a standard disc because the person that has refilled the machine inadvertently put it in the wrong spot. I think that happens. Mm-hmm. I also think that there are times when you'll get a scratch disc that don't work. I guarantee you you'll find a cracked disc that you know somebody carelessly put in the machine. But does that mean that that's worthy of a class action that Redbox is deliberately going out and only buying standard definition discs to dupe you out of your 30 cents or 50 cents? <laughs> I don't find that to be something that I would believe. I think that if I were if I were the the defense lawyer in this case, I think that you know I talk to my client and when they told me that that's absolutely not true, we don't do that, I think I would believe them wholeheartedly. And then it becomes the plaintiff's burden to prove that this has happened to enough people that you can prove some sort of systematic, um, deliberate uh, process where Redbox is doing this. And, and you are looking at that point for the email that says, hey, I've got a good idea. Let's not actually stock it with Blu-rays. You know, it's very <laughs> different. <laughs> 
I don't know that. Well, is it? It's going to be difficult to actually be able to prove that. You know, you could have a hundred thousand people that had this happen to them, but how do you know for sure? Yeah, I think that this is a tough, tough case, and I think that you know, my first thought is, how do you know that it wasn't error operator operator error? Somebody who was refilling the red box put the wrong disc in the wrong slot. All Redbox has to do is, I think, show how many Blu-rays they have and what their process oh, is. Sure. I don't think this goes anywhere. I think the bigger lesson is the uh, the old adage is they always screw you at the drive-thru. Yes. Leo gets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll see where that one goes. Major League Baseball teams dodging a minor leaguer's labor suit. CourthouseNews.com telling us that in San Francisco, a labor dispute between minor league baseball players and major league baseball may be educated in California, but only for claims against the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Detroit Tigers, and the New York Yankees. A federal judge ruled on Wednesday. In a punitive class action, lead plaintiff Aaron Seen, who played for the Miami Marlins organization from 2010 to 13, claims major league baseball underpays its amateur players, which you signed the contract to play for that much money, didn't you? And you're not underpaid. He originally sued three major league clubs, Major League Baseball and its commissioner, Bud Selig, in 2014, eventually adding all 30 major league teams as defendants. Ten of those teams moved to dismiss the action, claiming they weren't subject to the jurisdiction in California. Teams that sought dismissal were the Braves, the Red Sox, the White Sox, the Tigers, the Yankees, the Phillies, Pirates from Tampa Bay, Rays, and Nationals and the Orioles. The teams argued that intermittent travel communications and various other activities in California were not sufficient to establish personal jurisdiction there. But the minor league players argued that the major league has deep roots in California and derives substantial income from the state, I'm assuming through recruiting. The players also argue that the highly interdependent nature of the major league supports general jurisdiction, especially because the case involves a universal scheme enacted by all defendants to suppress or to depress salaries. In the court's 105-page ruling issued Wednesday, District Judge Joseph Sparrow said that the Supreme Court's recent guidance on the theory of general jurisdiction has made clear that the concept of home in the context of general jurisdiction should be understood narrowly. So that despite the MLB's lucrative licensing deals, California cannot be considered home to any of these clubs because their travel, business, and scouting activities in the state do not represent such a significant portion of their activities that their presence in California would be analogous to being domiciled in California or having their principal place of business in California. For that reason, Spiro said there is no general jurisdiction as the, of the teams in California. However, he did find that specific jurisdiction in California applies to the Pirates, Tigers, and Yankees since the named plaintiffs asserting claims against those teams all reside in California and have performed off-season work there over the past several years. Spiro dismissed the claims brought against the other seven teams for lack of personal jurisdiction. Neither side can be reached for comment. Um, is this a bigger question about a labor dispute or just the fact that you got to know where you're suing somebody? Yeah, this is just a general jurisdiction argument. You know, where can you sue somebody and if you're going to sue somebody, especially a, a company, um, you can't just sue them anywhere you want. There needs to be some nexus between, they call it the forum state, where you're going to bring suit. So you have to have some substantial connection to the forum state in order for that state to have any sort of in personam personal jurisdiction over you. So simply because... Um, you know, you like California better and you think it would be a better 
choice because you can go hang out by the beach when you're waiting for the jury to deliberate doesn't mean that you can bring somebody there. But the teams like the Yankees and, and the other teams that were named here, the Pirates, Tigers, um, they have a substantial connection, a nexus. You know, there's an anticipation that you're availing yourself of the services and laws of that state while you're participating in there, whether it's spring training or whatever. And so there's this expectation that you should, you know, be protected by those laws and have to abide by them. And therefore, you would be, you would have that that nexus test met so they could sue you in California. But if you've traveled to California or played a game in California, that's not a substantial enough nexus to be able to have jurisdiction over you. Well, all the uh, the uh, the court did was reassign jurisdiction. They didn't throw this class action out, so this still has legs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's just a matter of where you sue. And you know what? This happens all the time. It's not that the lawyer who did this is inexperienced. Perhaps he believed that he could get jurisdiction in this state and it would be easier. Uh, there's a, a, a number of reasons why somebody would do what he did. Um, but it, this is all just about the right administrative form where this should be adjudicated and nothing to do with the merits of the claim at all. Aha. <laughs> there you go. Maybe he thought it may be easier to uh, <laughs> get one of those. What's the, uh, the appellate court up in, in San Francisco at the Ninth District? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little more soft on labor claims or something as they are in most things. <laughs> you, always, you always find those, those those rulings out of San Francisco appellate court. Like, oh, really? That's a shocker. Yeah. Uh, here's something, you know, being being a cat fan myself, HuffingtonPost.com, unbelievable. 33-pound cat named Sprinkles found in a foreclosed New Jersey home. But there's a bigger question on this when we get through this. 33-pound, grossly overweight cat was rescued last week from the home in Sea Isle City, New Jersey. Shelter officials told the press of Atlantic City when officers found Sprinkles, Sprinkles, more like pieces, uh, <laughs> she was so obese that she couldn't roll over or properly groom herself. At four years, I know her pain. I feel her pain every day. At four years old, she's three times her average weight. Local sheriff's deputies found the pretty kitty in shabby condition. She was covered in fleas, mites, suffered from an infection, and had the paws of a nine-pound cat and the body of a 33-pound cat, according to SOS employee Mary DeVerry. She told the New York Daily News that her weight is reportedly an equivalent to a 700-pound human who should weigh 180 pounds. Now the forlorn feline getting a full makeover. She'll reportedly undergo a strict diet of four cans of food per day. Four cans? How about four spoonfuls? <laughs> and shelter, shelter workers hope she'll lose a pound a month. I need that kind of I, – I could do that. Until she reaches her target weight of about 10 pounds, press of Atlantic City reports, she'll also need a tummy tuck so her excess skin doesn't drag on the floor. Sprinkles was a little standoff just at first, barely moved, but now seems to be adapting well to her new home. Devery says she's walking around and is friendly to everyone, but because of her girth is unable to climb stairs. Her size also prohibited her from properly grooming herself, and Sprinkles entered with infections and a flea infestation, so it wasn't immediately clear why she was left in the house. And that's where I start to ask questions or how she got as big as she is, but can apply to uh, adopt sprinkles if you like. And other cats from the SOS shelters adoption homepage um, is, is there. A, I mean, this cat just didn't get this way by chasing mice <laughs> unless mice were coming to her. Hey, how you doing? You know, and 
So, I mean, somebody provided this cat with a lot of food now and not a lot of exercise. So do, do, do they go back after the homeowner on this? Or can they not prove that it's theirs? I don't think they can prove it's theirs. I, I think <laughs> this might solve the age and debate over whether or not people who gain weight, is, it's because they eat too much or because it's genetic. So I'm going to look at <laughs> genetic, and I'm going to feel better about myself. <laughs> Start tracing your bloodline down. That's right. <laughs> feel so much yeah, well, my, my my first thought was, how does a cat get this big? And yeah. second of all, you know, it, it was, there was some kind of outside force that allowed this cat to to get this large. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, 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 it also answers the question is whether or not you can just leave a cat with a litter box and a bag of food. Yeah. Well, that, you know, clearly that would be something that would be, I think, um, you know, against uh, against the law. I think that that's probably uh, cruel to treat an animal like that. But, you know, look, Sprinkles is looking for a new home. And if you have a flatbed truck and you'd like to adopt Sprinkles, I'm sure <laughs> she'd be happy to eat you out Bob of Bobcat. <laughs> Get a front end loader to put her in the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, who ate, was it? Who, who was it? What's, what's eating Gilbert Grape? What was the, what was the name of that book? His <laughs> mom was an extractor out the top window of the house. Um, yeah. So, uh, kind of a feel good story. Kind of until they get to the pending litigation, I'm sure. Uh, a mom meeting <laughs> meets a daughter who she thought had died 49 years ago. Standing outside of her Olivet home Thursday afternoon, usatoday.com, telling a 76-year-old Zella Jackson Price rattled off the names of her six adult children. Sharon, Theon, then Diane, then Harvey, Lisa, and the baby boy Chuck, she says. In an unusual reunion, Jackson Price was about to meet one of her children, Melanie Diane Gilmore, for the first time 49 years after she says a nurse told her the premature child died hours after giving birth. According to Jackson Price, in 1965 at Homer G. Phillips Hospital, Jackson Price gave birth to baby Diane shortly after. A, di- a nurse delivered the worst news possible. She came up to me three hours later and said, your baby has passed. 49-year-old Melanie Diane Gilmore of Oregon, very much alive, arrived in Lambert St. Louis International Airport Thursday afternoon, excited about the reunion of a lifetime. She would soon meet her mother first. She was greeted and hugged by her brother, Harvey Price Jr., Gilmore's son, and twin daughters began searching for their grandmother last year and connected with the help of Facebook, believe it or not. Of course, it does some good. Eventually, a DNA test confirmed the grandchildren's detective work. Back in Olivet, Price Jackson was anxiously awaiting the arrival of Melanie Diane, who has been hearing impaired since the age of three. She definitely can't hear because of measles. And I think if she had been with me, this would not have happened. Lawsuit, lawsuit, lawsuit. After, said Jackson Price, I want to see her roll down the street. I guess I might snatch her out of the car. Finally, Jackson Price saw her son's white SUV carrying a daughter and a grandchild. She's meeting for the first time. Now, once in once St. Louis, St. Louis's only hospital for African-Americans, Homer G. Phillips Hospital closed in 1979 and became senior living apartments in 2003. The question is, was the former hospital the scene of a kidnapping nearly 50 years ago? When the story aired a second time Friday afternoon, a woman called KSDK Television's newsroom saying her parents had a similar story. Baby girl born at Homer G. Phillips Hospital in 1953. 
Woman said a nurse told the parents the girl died. KSDK is looking into that story. The Price family said eventually it will hire an attorney to investigate what happened 49 years ago. <laughs> as soon as we get over, Jack's a Price saying, as soon as we get over all the excitement of being together and everything, I will seek a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So she'll be busy spoiling her daughter and grandchildren, a mystery that may never be solved. They have to just wait a little bit. So, ta-da, yeah. Um you know, I, I suppose you look back on, on, on the way things used to be, probably not difficultly overlooked. It was easy to overlook at the time, yeah. considering the conditions of the world and, and the country, that it would not be uncommon for someone to do this. If it's act, what actually happened was this was you know, a kidnapping scheme. Maybe the nurse was being paid a couple thousand dollars to kidnap newborns. And, hey, it's African-American hospital. And at that time in, in history, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but you said it was a good story up until the lawsuit. <laughs> right until the lawsuit. Uh, God love them. <laughs> hmm. Never fails. Um, and one more story, Florida. And this is something that you got to watch out for. And this is yeah, not this particular situation, but, man, you got to ask questions as a parent. Um, Florida dentist closing its practice amid abuse allegations. A Jacksonville dentist is under investigation by a state attorney general after several claims of abuse. He has relinquished his medical license, according to the Florida Department of Health. Said, I quit. Dr. Howard Schneider, a pediatric dentist, is accused of abusing his young patients. He's facing 10 lawsuits for medical malpractice and neglect. Allegations came to light after a mother took her young daughter in to have one tooth pulled. And the girl allegedly, there's that word again, came out of the office bleeding with scratches on her face, and my nine teeth were missing. When she went to police, she says they told her that was a civil matter. Too bad, so sad. She took to social media to find out if other parents were sharing the same frightening stories, and that's where Amy Brown comes into play. It's been more than 20 years since Brown took her son to see Dr. Schneider, but she says her emotions are still raw. Her son Kyle was just three years old at the time, according to court documents. A complaint filed in 1995 alleges that Dr. Schneider unnecessarily placed 16 crowns, 16 crowns in the little boy's mouth after shaving his teeth down, failing to inform and get consent from his mother. In her deposition, Brown stated that she was, he, she was told her son would need just six crowns. She says he was very uncomfortable, screaming, you're killing me, the way he was bleeding and what suffered through it was, it was scary. Result of the complaint she filed said uh, with pain, suffering, and mental anguish. He remembers how he didn't want to smile, and, of course, he remembers how he was embarrassed he was to show, show his mouth full of teeth, and they were solid silver. She sued him for $15,000 back then. Court documents show the case was settled a year later for $7,500. She says, she says that, I thought he had been shut down. I had no idea he was still practicing. Brown was shocked to see on Facebook allegations from another mother against Dr. Schneider. But, what did you sign? <laughs> when you signed off on a settlement, did you not see the part where he was going to continue to do this? Many other parents just, and that's, I'll, I'll say something about that in a second. Many other parents just like her spent nine days in front of Dr. Schneider's office protesting. They refused to talk in camera, but said by phone, they won. I'm going to close the practice. My staff has quit. I have no patience. And he has no people to work on either. Um, over a four-year period, Medicaid, four years. Medicare paid him $3.9 million to treat children on Medicaid. Schneider said, I earned that money the hard way. 
yeah, you've got to do a lot of grinding to get those teeth down for caps. Uh, Schneider's case will be discussed during a May 29th meeting of the Board of Dentistry. Allegations of protesters gathered for days outside of Schneider's office eventually sparked the criminal investigation and caused the closing of his practice. Um, you know, you go back to this, and a lot of people sue for X amount of dollars. This person sued for $15,000, and she got $7,500. And she didn't press the most important part was making sure the problem was fixed. And, you know, you, you think that I'd sue for if, 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 if you did that, I'd sue for a dollar just to make sure you couldn't have your license. Just to prove the point. Yeah. You know, it's it's challenging because that's that's what a lot of people think. Um and in a negligence case, you know, you're just showing that you had a duty, you breached the duty. And negligence is not the same as something that would result in a license revocation or suspension. It's really the totality of the circumstances. And I think that when you're dealing with one situation, this one woman sued and, um, you know, it was a settlement that was probably reasonable to her at the time. She would, when entering that settlement, sign a release. You know, it would state that uh, this is not an admission of wrongdoing, and that would have been it. Sure. Because at the time, she was probably only interested in getting the money. I mean, that that's sure. when something's Normal. happening. Yeah, you're looking for for the money. Um, it, it, later on, you become more. Um, I don't know, thoughtful and mindful of... of <laughs> Concerned. Yeah, yeah. But at that time, you're only interested in you. Um, it, it Look, this guy sounds to have done just uh, negligent procedures. I mean, th- this is somebody that, with this amount of, of negative publicity, maybe he just, I don't know, he shouldn't be a dentist. And, and clearly, I mean, what he did... The things that he did, the the non-consent and things like that, were wrong. Um, so this is so egregious that you can understand why it's gone this far. Uh, as far as the mother, though, settling, she probably didn't really give much thought to the other people at that time and just settled. Sure. You know what I mean? That's probably what happened. I would expect that this isn't over. No, but you know what? At some point, uh, there's not going to be any money left for anyone to get from this guy because I'm sure that <laughs> other people will come out of the woodwork too. And, you know, he did make a significant amount of money. I mean, the 3.9 from Medicare, that's a lot of money. A million bucks a year. Yeah, that's a lot of money. So. I'm, I'm doing the math. If you work 220 days a year, that's 4,500 bucks a day. He's almost making what a lawyer makes. <laughs> Sorry, it was too easy, man. <laughs> uh, <I just> wish. <laughs> uh, with with dubious, you know, with with with, with questionable clients, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's all good, man. <laughs> that's right. I missed that show, man. I got to get it back on. Oh, that show was so good. I can't wait for that to come back. <laughs> that's all I got for the day, man. Well, we got through a lot of stuff, so uh, yes. a lot of good stories today. We're going to have to follow up on some of them. I'm really interested in the Duggar story. 
want to see where that goes. Um, so we'll touch on that next week. That's going to do it. You for think today. that's going to start to drift into the uh, drift into the civil arena? You know, it might. I mean, I really would like to see you know Mama June from Honey Boo Boo get all worked up and and file something. Sure. But we'll see, and it'll also. I think it's going to set the tone for TLC as they continue because I think that while it's their highest moneymaker, is there going to be so much outrage? Is TLC going to cancel it permanently or they not? So that's interesting to see. There's so many business factors that come into play there, not just legal. So we'll follow that and see where that goes. All righty, though. What, um, what, what, what do you got? Something? What, did, did, did they have the Duck Commander people on? Was that TLC or was that Discovery? No, I think that's, I think it's Discovery. Yeah, it's definitely oh, not TLC. TLC is more gotcha. family oriented. Although, uh, obviously, how <laughs> <laughs> uh, foolish of me to think that. Yeah, right. <laughs> TLC is only wholesome stuff. That's uh, right. <laughs> we'll keep an eye on that. That's for sure. All right, sounds good. All right, so that's going to do it for today. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, to the podcast. Follow us. Please continue to leave your comments and feedback. Thanks to all of you who are new subscribers on the YouTube page. We try to uh, broadcast this podcast and other podcasts live every week, both on our podcast channel and through YouTube Live. Um, Those of you who might have missed this, then hopefully you're downloading it on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe so you know when new episodes are airing. Also, don't forget to take advantage of the free audiobook from Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio to claim your free book. Also, just want to remind you that last week we ran a series of five videos giving you the top five reasons not to file a lawsuit. So check them out over on our YouTube channel. And we're going to be working on another set of top fives hopefully towards the end of this week, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I'm asking for our listeners to suggest top five lists that you would like to see business or law-related. The top five reasons, for example, why you would want to file a lawsuit, the top five reasons um, to ask for a specific sum of money or whatever it might be. So give me your top five, and we'll create a series of videos for them. Uh, I will be back on tomorrow, probably a little bit later than our scheduled 10 o'clock. We're going to go through legal Q&A. It might be 10.30 tomorrow, so just stay tuned for that posting. That's going to do it for me and Bob. We'll be back next Monday at our regular scheduled time because there are no holidays, and we will be uh, on the grid, not off the grid. We'll be back Monday. That's going to do it, and thanks, everybody, for, uh, for tuning in. We'll see you again next time. An ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this?
It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.